want to encourage you, um, as we continue on in worship, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible. I want you uh, to open up to Acts chapter 16. Before we jump into Acts chapter 16, uh, yesterday we had a uh, missional community leaders training. It's uh, our way of saying small groups, community groups, um, and it was, I had to leave halfway through to bring Isaac to uh, Little League, but that first half for me was completely encouraging um, for us to sit in um, Ephesians and uh, to wrestle through what does it mean to be a body that has been saved by Christ and, uh, and to work that out. And so uh, one of the things that came up, and here's going to just be an encouragement thing for you. Uh, I think I heard it from um, maybe Michael, and I also heard it from Nathan reporting back about his, or Sarah reporting back about their group. Um, in your bulletin, there is a half page nearly blank. I want to encourage you to help engage your mind and your ears and your heart all at the same time. Take notes. It, it helps you retain. It helps you grow. It helps you learn. It helps it so it's on a Monday. You go, okay, what was it that he said? Oh, that's right. I wrote it down. It's that constant encouragement. So I want to encourage you, take notes. If you need a pen, you can find, get up, walk. Maybe Brent would even grab one. There's some pens in the back. Take notes, and this isn't just a, a teach, the teacher and me coming out, but uh, this is an opportunity for you to really grow in your faith. Secondly, is periodically, one of the things that I like to do, since we're that size of a church, is I want to hear feedback. I love, we've been in Acts now, one, two, three, back about four weeks since uh, Advent, um, and we're in a 68-week series, so it's good to kind of look back just even the past couple weeks what has god been stirring in your heart what's been brought to mind as scripture has been read and um, we've been walking through it verse by verse section by section what is it that god is stirring in you to do to be about yeah Things that struck you maybe from last week.
false humility. Anyone else? Even if we, yeah, even if we mess up here, it doesn't stop God's plans. His plans will not be thwarted. Amen. You're preaching right now. If it is all lovely and absolutely perfect, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Anyone else? We're going to start uh, starting with uh, 15, verse uh, 36, and we're going to read through 16.10, because uh, verse 36 in chapter 15 is really the beginning of, um, properly speaking, the second missionary journey of Paul. And for us to understand 16, of course, you've got to back up, get a little bit more context, and uh, so we fully understand. So let, let's look at starting at 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through uh, Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who had, be, 
who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were uh, in those places, for all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for uh, delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they also went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And when they came up to Musia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Musia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. So this is, properly speaking, the beginning of the second missionary journey of Paul from his sending church of Antioch and Syria. And we saw previously the, the launching forward of the gospel, the, of the, this next missionary venture, was riddled with difficulties and conflict and pain. But we can remember that the story of the progress of missions is, like Katie said, it often involves such challenges. But God overrules for the sake of his glory. Nothing will stop God's plan for spreading his glory among the nations. Nothing. Not us. Not outside obstacles outside the church. Not governments. Not the Senate. Not, nothing will stop God's plan for his glory, for him receiving glory and the Great Commission going for nothing. We think that we're persecuted and things are stopping for us as a Christian nation. No, nothing will stop God's plan for spreading the gospel in this nation. Both Paul and Barnabas were, were passionate about the gospel. They were both, therefore, passionate about the Great Commission. As we know, the, this dispute, dispute arose, and, and it was over what seems like secondary things, over proper personnel for this venture, where Barnabas wanted John Mark, his cousin, to come with him. Paul thought that was absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's a poor choice. It's unwise. It's unhealthy. It may thwart the, the mission of the church, and it ultimately neither of them would yield their position. And as a result, they parted ways. And we can assume that they never would do together. Paul and Barnabas would never do work together. But as we were reminded, even though the contention was sharp between the two, something beautiful came out of it. Out of one team, two missionary teams came together. Barnabas with John Mark being one, and Paul and Silas being with the other. And the church in Antioch commended Paul and Silas, and they went back into southern Galatia. And they, they were seemingly reversing their steps that Paul and Barnabas had originally taken in their first missionary journey. They, they were reversing their steps. And even though this may be the last time that we really read of Barnabas and Mark as a missionary team, it's not the last time that we read of Paul and Silas. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts 
recounts the missionary endeavors of these two men with special attention given to Paul. And this was no doubt Luke's intention. The book of Acts is the record of the gospel for the first century church in its first 20 to 25 years of existence, breaking the chains of the Jewish bound wineskins and going out into the rest of the world. It's a powerful picture, and it's beautiful for us. And since Paul was the especially chosen vessel for the gospel to reach the nations, look back at Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it's not surprising that Luke would focus on him specifically for this ministry. And this becomes very apparent even at the beginning of chapter 16. It starts off, the very first word says, Paul. Not Barnabas, not Mark, not Silas, Paul. He is the central figure that the Holy Spirit uses for the furtherance of the gospel. And from where we sit, it is to be greatly appreciated that this took place in this chapter because in many ways, according to human reason, we have the benefits. We have the benefits of the gospel because of Paul's going out. We need to be thankful for chapter 16 because of Paul's missionary work we today have the gospel. It's true for South Africa and for much of the Western world and for that part, for the rest of the world as well. So we begin our study looking at the gospel progress in this momentous time in history. This is a huge movement. And I hope, as we look at this, and look at this second missionary journey, that it is a time that we are edified, that we are, we are matured in our faith. So there are several, several issues that arise uh, when we look at these opening 10 verses, 16 through uh, 1 through 10, in reference to missionary strategy. Missionary strategy, and we're going to pick up on, on five of them. The first one is this, a missionary's commitment. A missionary's commitment, the need for faithful courage. Faithful courage. The text opens up with Paul returning to Derby and Lystra. Now, if, if you have some long-term memory issues, let me refresh your memory. This deals with a great deal of courage on Paul's behalf because it was in this exact same region that he was stoned and left for dead. Stoned and left for dead. Yet his commitment to Christ and to the sheep of the chief shepherd would allow him no out. He had to go back to Derby and Lystra. He had to go back. And such spiritual courage is necessary. It's absolutely necessary for those who will leave their comfort zones for the cause of the Great Commission. Courage is required for those of us who are in Christ. The cause, listen to this, the cause is worth it because the cause is Christ. The cause is worth it because the cause is Christ. 
if the cause was simply building a larger church and having the best spot on the corner and having all these amazing programs and, man, lots of people getting involved in, in a drama program or an Awana's program or this program or that program, it's not worth it. If it's for the sake of building up amazing budgets and saying, look what we've accomplished, it's not worth it. The cause is worth it for Paul, the man who was left for dead. The cause was worth it for him because the cause is Christ. The cause is Christ. It, it was a particularly dangerous missionary field. And for Paul to choose any other reasons, there was no money in it for him. There were no amazingly deep relationships that he would, he would say, man, I... I'd love to go back and get stoned because I got these amazing friends. It wasn't all because of that. He said it was worth it because of his Damascus Road experience where he encountered the living Christ. And that totally changed him from the inside out. The cause is worth it because of what Christ has done for him. The cause is worth it. I think about the missionaries that we support. John and Missy Camiola. And I, when I look at them, I kind of go, you know what? You guys are insane. You take your entire tribe of children, small children, to Joss, Nigeria, where you are at the crossroads of the Muslim movement and the Christian movement, and you are at a hotbed. I remember a few years ago where all kinds of missionaries were pulling out of Joss, Nigeria because there was a tremendous amount of tension. Bombs were going off around their compound, and John and Missy did what? Despite everybody else leaving, they said, we're staying here. We and our children. We're not putting them on a plane back and preserving their health and their safety. No. The cause is worth it because the cause is Christ. Yes, we're talking about a missionary venture here. It also speaks to us. Is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it to you? Missionaries, they take their, take their cue from Paul. We need men and women of great courage to send them out to the nations, to share the gospel in hostile, dangerous places where their lives might be spent for the sake of the gospel and God's glory. But it is true for us here. The average layman and laywoman, the average member of the body of Christ, we too need great courage for the sake of the gospel. We're scared more of a furrowed brow than a raised pistol. Are you willing to be courageous, deeply courageous for the gospel? Or is that something in your mind that is left for those Christians who are wired differently? Second thing that we can learn here is a missionary's work, the priority of mentorship. The second principle, the, the priority of mentor, mentorship can be seen in the second half of verse 1 through the first half of verse 3. Let's read it. And behold, a certain man was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brethren who were, were at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted to have him go on with him. Here we see the beginning of Paul's personal mentoring of Timothy as he became his hand-picked companion to accompany him on these journeys. Out of this relationship, Timothy became Paul's emissary to various churches. And, in fact, it would, he would become the pastor-teacher of one of the churches that Paul planted in Ephesus. Ephesus. So it should be noted, based on the... This is what kind of blows my mind, as I'm doing all this research, looking at the chronology, and look... It, based on the chronology of the New Testament books and events, we can conclude with a certain amount of accuracy that Timothy, in Acts 16 was probably in between the ages of 18 and 20. He was a young man. He was a young man. And yet Paul, he was willing, even strongly desirous, according to some translations, that this young man would accompany him. This young man. Paul was wise to plan for the future. He was committed to training this young man to fill his shoes once he had run the race, run the course, and he had finished it. He was looking for a young man who would fill his spot. He was intentional in his succession planning because succession planning is essential for missionary strategy. Choosing one, choosing one, and saying, you come with me. I am going to disciple you as we walk about. I am choosing you out of all of these. I'm choosing you, and I'm choosing you. Now come with me. Because it's for the sake of the gospel. So we need to take some time to learn what we can about this, this 18 to 20-year-old young man whose name is mentioned 26 times throughout the New Testament and has two letters written specifically to him. There is something about Timothy that we can learn. First of all, his name means honored by God. And the events in his life show indeed that God had graced him abundantly. And Timothy, in turn, honored the Lord. It's amazing how names mean something, don't they? Honored by God. God honored him with a tremendous amount of grace and mercy. Grabbed him out of his his world, and saved him by grace. Saved him. And in turn, what did Timothy do? He honored God fully with his life. We know from this text that Timothy was raised in a spiritually split home. The fact that it says that his mother was a, a certain Jewish woman means at the very least that she was committed to the old covenant Judaism. It may be too much to say that she was a genuine convert from her youth, and perhaps she was even saved in Timothy's early years. However, she was a, whatever we believe about her, she was a faithful Christian woman. But the contrast between her father and mother, his father and mother, is signified by this strong, this word in the Greek, this word but. I know it doesn't sound like much to you, but the way that the Greek is written, it, it's strong. But implies that his father was an unbeliever. The tense of the word, the word was, indicates that his father had been a Greek. Not in the sense that he, he was converted to Christianity, but in the sense that 
He was dead. He had died. Timothy's mother, Eunice, was therefore a widow, along with Eunice's mother, Lois. They were both widows. And in ancient Jewish cultures, children traditionally took on the religion of their mothers. But the fact that Timothy was not circumcised as a baby shows that his father was not supportive of Eunice's Christian faith. 2 Timothy 1.5 and 3, uh, 2 Timothy 3.14-15 informs us that Timothy's mother and grandmother were committed to the Jewish scriptures so much that they taught those scriptures to him from his childhood. Despite what dad believed, Eunice and Lois were passionate about teaching the scriptures to this young man. And for whatever reason, contrary to God's revealed will, this godly woman married a pagan man. And no doubt this woman had her work cut out for her to raise a godly son. Thank God for the gospel. And thank God for the gospel preachers like Paul who courageously went out and freely shared the gospel. It would seem in a from various passages, that Timothy, though nurtured in his faith by his mother and grandmother, may have actually been converted during Paul's first missionary journey coming through. If so, this may have well have been the time that his, his grandmother and mother came to appreciate how the gospel scriptures were able to make them wise to salvation through faith which is in Christ as well. It may have been a family experience of their eyes opening up together. Eunice and Lois and Timothy all hearing the gospel as Paul is preaching it. And their eyes opened up and their hearts were were changed. And it must be remembered that this has been perhaps as long as five years ago that this happened. Since Paul and Barnabas had last been in Lystra. But even if it had only been two years, this was obviously sufficient enough time for a dedicated young believer to grow in such a way that his character and his competency would be detected as a promise for more. Look at this man's character and his competency. We should learn as a congregation, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as moms, as dads, as Uh, kids crossing teachers as small group leaders, missional community leaders, we should learn from this not to despise the youth that are around. In fact, we should also learn to expect more. We should learn more from young people and expect more from young people than we currently do. I can learn stuff from them, but I'll tell you, so much more from them than we often do. We should be looking at certain young people and young adults with the view of a succession plan. Do we look at Breck Lord Phillips, who would much rather kind of dance around and be up here and sit still? Do we look at him as a potential succession plan for the gospel? Do we look at Bethany? Muda, she's precious in God's eyes. She's 
not just this little girl. She is a gift from God and part of God's succession plan. And therefore, we should expect much from her. Verse 2 informs us that young Timothy was, had a commendable testimony among those who knew him. And in keeping with Paul's later instructions concerning the qualifications for elders, Timothy was already well on his way towards being a spiritual leader. The brothers looked at him and just said, he's got a reputation among us already. So the body is already saying, yeah, there, there is this kid has tremendous amount of promise. And Paul comes back and says, you don't have to tell me that. I see it already. I want that one. And here we can learn that one's youthful years, hear this, parents, one's youthful years are vital, vital in shaping character. Parents, do all that you can do to raise those who will one day be leaders in the Lord's church. Do everything that you can. Don't look at them as just your little cute kids that you go and get your cute pictures taken at the mall about that. Man, oh, no, these are future leaders for the sake of the Gospels going forward. Whether, and there are also leaders in the future homes. And there are leaders in the future church or in another part of the world. Wherever they may go, we've got to look at our children, not as things that we coddle and keep close and nurture and just pet and make look pretty. These are our future ministries, missionaries. These are our future church starters. These are our future elders and deacons. These are our future ministry leaders. We need to look at them and train them as vital members of our body. Paul had a keen eye for potential leaders. He saw something in this young man. The, the first half of verse 3, Luke uses strong language to depict how strongly Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. The ESV kind of puts it in a softer way as well as the NSAB, they both kind of say Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Well, when I think about Paul wanting something, I think about Paul would like some red meat. Paul would like to have a beautiful day. The King James says him would Paul have go, go forth with him. A.T. Robertson suggests the phrase here can be translated, this one, comma, Paul wanted. This one, Paul loved him devotedly. And it was a glorious discovery for Paul to find a real preacher for Christ's work. And from what follows, it's clear that Timothy went with the church's blessing as well as the blessing from his mother and his grandmother. And we should think about this for a moment. Don't let this escape. Moms, I want you to hear this especially. Consider the fact that these two women, Eunice, mother, and Lois, grandmother, had been witnesses, or at least aware of the fact of all the troubles that Paul had experienced in Lystra. They could have been eyewitnesses of Paul being stoned and left for dead. In full awareness of this risk, full awareness of it, they seemingly gave their full support to Timothy going forward with this dangerous man. 
you know, we're, we're, we're scared in our schools, man. And we, we even, we move to different neighborhoods because of things are getting a little shady. A little scary over here. Crime's going up over in Joliet. Maybe we need to move more this way and move a little further south. But here, these, these two women, Lois and Eunice, both said, you know what? We know what is going on. We know the pain that he was left for dead. We may have even seen it and heard or heard reports about it. Timothy, we are going to bless you in your going with this dangerous man. We see God's calling on your life. Therefore, we release you. We need to learn from this that the cause of Christ calls for sacrifice. It calls for sacrifice. It calls for risk-taking. It calls for cutting loose apron strings. It calls for parents to be willing to give their children up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Heidelberg Catechism, the first question and answer, says, uh, what is your greatest comfort in life and in death? And it starts off by saying, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Lord. Can you say that for your children? And I'm ready to release them because they're their eternal security is secure. And I release them in life and in death, no matter what may come their way. I release them because I am just a steward to prepare them for the mission. And God, when you call them to go, I bless them. I bless them, send them on. Other commentators also kind of notice that uh, there was a phrase in here, a particular tense used that his father was a Greek, and it indicates that he was probably dead. His father was dead at this point. And we don't know if Timothy had siblings, but nevertheless, it was a tremendous sacrifice, particularly in those days, for a widow and her mother to say, say goodbye to their son and grandson. Because Timothy would have been the breadwinner. He would have cared for, provided for mother and grandmother in all kinds of ways. But obviously, they trusted in the Lord to care for them. Would we display the same kind of faith? That as we release, that God will care and care for us. In summary, Paul chose this young man to be his apprentice. And the rest is literally history. And it's a very wonderful history, to say the least. Charles Erdman, could you throw this quote up for me? Brent, I think I put it in there. If not, if not, listen carefully. The whole story, this whole story is a beautiful commentary upon the value of friendships and companionship in Christian service, and particularly in the work on foreign fields. This is a beautiful picture of friendships and companionship. I can think of no better passage than, than how Paul concluded and talked about Timothy in, second, or in Philippians chapter 2. 
listen to this. This I know that I have. Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Timothy was like this messenger who was going to be sharing news. Listen to this. I have no one like him. No one like him who would be genuinely concerned concerned for your welfare. Does that speak of his character and that deep, loving relationship between spiritual father and son? It goes to say this, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul here gives his highest commendation of the character of this young man. And may these words be characteristic also of us and those that we are responsible for. And may we be blessed to even export such words to other people over and over again and in years and decades May there be a, a certain fruitfulness in how we live and understand the gospel that our children are raised up and we can say there is no one like him. No one like him. And there's this beautiful father-son relationship. The third thing that I see here is a missionary's wisdom. The necessity for contextualization. In the second half of verse 3 through 4, we see a biblical example of something that's frequently called in uh, theological worlds, pastors' worlds, uh, contemporary mission discussions as contextualization. Say the word? Contextualization. It's an odd word. I know some of you are going, why do I need to know this? Well, it's kind of important. Listen to what he says here. He took him, meaning Timothy, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was a Greek. And as they went on their, their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance of the decisions that they had reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. This brief passage is full of interest to anyone who's been paying attention since the beginning of chapter 15. You'll recall that there were false teachers who went to Antioch and caused such an upheaval by their assertion and insistence that Jewish or Gentile believers must be circumcised. They must be circumcised if they would truly and fully be saved. Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church back to Jerusalem to bring this, this issue before the church and say, what do we believe? Do we believe that we are saved by works or race? Or do we believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone? So the issue came before them. The gospel was at stake. And after much discussion, a conclusion was reached that salvation had nothing to do with either race or works, but rather with grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Jerusalem Council concluded by sending a letter out to the churches, back to the Gentile churches, 
assuring them that they had been saved. They were accepted by grace alone, and they rejected any suggestion that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. But the letter also exhorted and encouraged these, these Gentile believers to be sensitive to the Jewish culture by which they were surrounded. Be sensitive to them. And therefore, they were to restrain certain liberties that they had in Christ out of love. Restrain those liberties. Despite that decree, Paul here had a grown man circumcised before embarking on the mission to go to One, just an awkward general kind of, so, hey, Timothy, just you and me, sharp stone, this is what we're going to do. What? You're going to do what? Trust me, man. <laughs> you know, in our cultural kind of things, one, we don't even talk about it, and we get a little eebie-jeebies about it, but in that man-to-man kind of thing, it had to be, one, awkward. Two, here, here's something that just also just adds another color and layer to this that makes it even more complex. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, which was before Acts 15, he refused to have Titus circumcised. He refused to have Titus circumcised because he was so adamant to protect the gospel. So in light of this, in the record of Paul having Timothy circumcised, Titus not circumcised, it leaves people going, what's going on? You know, Paul, are you inconsistent here? And I believe that, and I trust that I can show you that there's no inconsistency whatsoever. Paul's actions were very consistent with the very letter that he was carrying to the churches. One commentator said that Timothy was both Jew and Greek and would continually give offense to the Jews with no advantage to the Gentile freedom. Here was a question of efficient service and not an essential establishment. The text before us tells us very plainly that everybody knew that Timothy was a Greek and his father was a Greek, and therefore it was common knowledge that if you are a Greek, you are uncircumcised. There lay in the problem, the challenge for Paul. And as you see how Paul goes and does his missionary journeys, in his first port of call, where does he go? He goes to the local synagogue. This usually led to trouble when Paul went to the synagogue. Paul was trying as much as humanly possible to avoid as much unnecessary trouble as he could. But more so, if Timothy was not circumcised, if Timothy wasn't circumcised, then he would not be given the opportunity to minister in the synagogue at all. And probably, because of their relationship, Paul would not be able to minister in the, circum- or in the synagogue at all. Paul was therefore being strategic. He was being strategic. He was doing what missiologists consider and refer to as contextualizing the gospel. He was compromising what 
he could without giving up what he could not. He was not compromising what he, he was compromising what he could, what he could. He could give up on this issue of circumcision as long as you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. He would not give up on that. John Stott captures Paul's wisdom in his decision and even risk at being labeled inconsistent. He says it here. Do I have that one at least for good? Little minds, I love it. Stott kind of knocks you across the chin. Little minds would have condemned him for inconsistency. But what was deeply, was a deep consistency in his thoughts and actions. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God, circumcision, was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. Circumcision wasn't required or needed at all before God. But to reach these people, circumcision was necessary and advisable. The fact is that good missionaries know what is essential and what is not essential. They know the difference between what is biblically permissible in a culture and what is not permissible in a culture. As Luther put it, Paul was strong in faith and soft in love. I know, kind of is it all. Or as John Newton once said, Paul was a reed in non-essentials. He was flexible. An iron pillar in the essentials. He stood strong on those, on those essentials. This, of course, was Paul's part of Paul's missionary strategy. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, read it sometime. Go home, write it down in your notes. Check out what was Paul's missionary strategy. Historically, missionaries have always had to discern what cultural things need to be changed by the gospel and what can be left unchanged. You can look at Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is one of the great missionaries off to China. And when he went to China as a missionary, he began to dress like the men to whom he was ministering to. But I'm going to tell you, he caught flack by other missionaries. Because he dressed like them. In fact, he I, maybe I could do this, but it looked a little weird. But he even grew his hair long and put it into a ponytail. Because he wanted to reach the men of that culture. And when he came in looking like a Westerner with short hair, he was unable to reach them. So he did whatever it took to reach them without compromising the gospel. And he was effective in reaching people. The fourth thing, a missionary's blessing. There's a perpetual goal. And verse 5 sums it up in a, in a short sentence. The goal of every true missionary, local churches, is that local churches are strengthened in the faith and growing numerically. And I'm going to tell you right now, before I go any further, this is the hardest one for me. I get all those other things. This is a difficult one for me to wrap my head around. And you'll hear why. Verse 5 says, So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number how often? How often? I don't know if that sunk in with you at all. But they increased in number daily. Daily. 
we can use two words here, confirmation and conversion. Confirmation and conversion. First, confirmation. The word translated strengthen means to make firm and solid like muscles. Not like mine, but like other people's muscles. Firm and solid like muscles. And this description is used elsewhere in Acts of, of the local churches. Paul was not one who was satisfied just with another notch in his belt of, got another church, got another church, got another church. You're doing a good job planting churches. What he wanted to do, he was passionate that the local churches would grow from strength to strength to strength. He didn't want just a bunch of churches out there. He wanted these churches growing and being strengthened in their faith. He had a pastor's heart, and that this was required for missionaries as well. But just what was it that established them and strengthened them? Clearly, it was something that had to do with the message that was brought back from Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, So wise and healthy was the Jerusalem Council's uh, decision incorporated into their letter that whatever its good news, wherever this good news went, the churches grew in stability and in steadfastness. This message, which conveyed the truth that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, and its expression of Christian fellowship, this was good news that encouraged the churches in the Lord. In other words, the message of the gospel was what strengthened them. And they were encouraged by the gospel. One can imagine the message being carried by these missionaries resulted in a corporate expression of, thank God for the gospel. This is good news that I don't have to work and do deeds to be saved. I am saved solely by grace alone. Such is the result of teaching that strengthens believers in objective faith in, in the gospel. But their subjective faith is also encouraged to grow as well. And what results from this? The subjective? Everett Harrison says this. With the solution adopted by the council, those churches which were mainly Gentile in character gained new confidence and new boldness in evangelism. The result was daily increase. Daily increase. The church here increased in numbers daily. And this is a glorious statement. Something that I long for and lust for. Not just because I'm a pastor, but because I have a heart for people. I long for the church to be increasing in numbers daily. Do you? Silence says elsewise. Do you? Yes? Do you long for the church to be growing and increasing in numbers daily? Because new people have been rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of light because the grace of God has been poured out on them. Do you long to see new life being brought into our church? Brand new believers every day as the gospel is being shared. You say, Paul, I, I, I don't know what happened. But obviously, I was sharing the gospel today in the grocery store, and this lady came to Christ. Man, incorporate her into the body. We need more missional community leaders because we have more people being added to our numbers on a daily basis, we should, be, we should be expecting this as well. Hear me say that. 
we should be expecting this as well. A.T. Robertson notes that the, the, the tense of this verb was an imper imperfect active. It means little, few, but what it implies is that the blessing from God was on the work of Paul and Silas and in Timothy in the form of a continuous, 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 continuous revival. They were constantly, every day, there was more and more. The church was continuously growing. Not only was the church growing in its depth, they were strength, but she was growing in its breadth. She was growing better as well as larger. That is the desire of every missionary. That should be the desire of every pastor. That should be the desire of every person in this church. That the church is growing deeper and it is growing wider. As the gospel is being preached, people are coming to faith and coming to life in Christ, and they are being discipled and rooted in faith. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything, everything that I've commanded, everything. That's talking about its depth, right? And rooting people to obey. Now, hear this. There is no inherent virtue in remaining small. This is, I, I, part of me likes this because it feels kind of like a living room experience. Kind of hanging out as family and friends. It's kind of fun. I get a little bit of feedback from you. We see each other and we get really excited when we see each other. Walking down, some of you late. Walking in the parking lot, coming in. Oh, I can't, I love these people. And there's something, you know, I, I've even heard in some Christian cultures about this, um, well, we're, we're a small church because we're true to the gospel. We're faithful, and it keeps people out. And I'm going, what are you smoking? The gospel changes people's heart, and a fruit of the gospel is numerical growth and spiritual growth and depth. Smallness is no proof, no necessary proof of orthodoxy. The book of Acts, however, gives the lie, gives the lie to such a conviction. And over and over in this, the history of the book of early church missions, we read that the church is multiplying and increasing in number, multiplying and increasing. You know, go through your, your Bible, the book of Acts, and look how God is adding to the church. He is adding to the church. In fact, on one occasion, we are told of 3,000 people who were saved in one fell swoop. Acts chapter 2, 41. 3,000. Even if you believe that it has some kind of uh, picture of Old Testament stuff and completion and this and that, it is still 3,000 people. 3,000 people. And in another place, the number of men who were converted had grown to 5,000, Acts chapter 4. It certainly appears that God is pleased with numerical growth. Though we certainly recognize that numerical growth lies entirely in the realm of God's sovereignty, His control, nevertheless, we should certainly expect it. That over time, through faithful preaching of the gospel, that we will see fruit that abound. As we talk about the missionary, we need to keep in mind 
that what is true on the foreign field is equally true here. This is not just something for those that we send out. It is God's desire that we have both the expectation of both depth and breadth here as well as there. And we must keep in mind that what may not be true always in experience in one certain location will will be true in in another location. We, We need to trust God that he will bring fruit and harvest in his way and in his numbers as he doles out according to his will. But one thing that we should expect is depth and breadth. Such a growth in real senses is deliberate growth. Deliberate. I'm sure it was not just Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were going back and visiting the churches who had elders and deacons and regular members of the body of Christ, all required to tell them to share the gospel as a response to God's love and grace. Is a deliberate growth that we have, or lack of growth that we have? What what, what is what is it that keeps us like this? sake, the cause worth it? Is the cause of Christ worth it? There are people perishing who need the gospel. And Jesus is faithful. The last thing, the missionary's perseverance, the mystery of providence and Response to salvation. Verses 6 through 10, we learn about a missionary and their pro- God's providence. That God sometimes says yes and sometimes God says no. We see here that they, they were hoping to go in this direction and the Spirit of God said, nope, you don't go here. No, nah, we're going to shut the door. You may not speak a word here. And here's Paul and Timothy inside us going, we are passionate about sharing the gospel. And God in his providence and his wisdom say, no. And I need you to trust. There's, there's setbacks and there's restraints. They're accompanied by missionary endeavors, our local endeavors as a church. There are always going to be restraints. And, but we must first trust that even closed doors for the gospel are closed doors because God so wills it. It does not mean that we cannot be praying for these closed doors to become open doors, but we must trust that closed doors are there because God has closed the door. And according to his sovereign plan, he says, I want you to go elsewhere. Sometimes what we do is we get so caught up in this closed door that we can't go anywhere else other than away from this closed door and realize that there are Thousands of people in our community who are perishing apart from Christ that need this gospel. And God may be saying, don't go here. There'll be a time for this. Go down your street the other direction. Maybe go to that other co-worker. 
for some reason, the Holy Spirit prohibited teaching. It's often confusing when God says no. We don't see truth happen. We don't have all the answers, and even in, with closed doors, it's not a waste of money or time. William Carey initially wanted to go to Polynesia in the South Seas, but God sent him to India. Judson wanted to go to Burma, but God sent him to India. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but where did God send him? Africa. God has his will and his ways, and it's for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. Missionaries need to submit to God's sovereignty, even when they don't understand. But then God breaks through. And this is an amazing thing. God breaks through, and we see this here. Um, verse 9, in the middle of the night, probably, Paul received a vision. A man from Macedonia. We have no idea who this is. Some commentators tried to figure it out. Apparently, Luke didn't think it was important. Don't try to figure out what's not in there. But there was a man from Macedonia calling and saying, come to us. God works in mysterious, amazing ways. And this was a cry for salvation. It was a, God, a cry for God's elect for the salvation. This man was speaking on behalf of Europe. Come and save us. And so what did Paul do with a tremendous amount of confidence? He packed up and he went. He responded. A vision was enough. question for us as a church is, what do we take away from Acts 16, 1 through 10? What do we do? How, how do we respond to this? 